Hey everyone, welcome to the Bio Breakthroughs Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Taylor. Joining me today is the CEO of Biological Dynamics, Paul Billings. How are you today? Great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you. Let's dive right in. Give us a, an overview of your background and then we'll talk about the company. So uh, I'm a physician. Uh, I did a MD and PhD uh, many years ago at Harvard Medical School, working with a Nobel laureate, Baruch Benassareff, on some questions of uh, T-cell biology. Um, I then trained as an internal medicine doctor and as a medical geneticist, and have spent about half my career uh, in academic settings, both at Harvard and at Stanford and in UCSF. And then uh, the second half of my career has been largely in the uh, biotech and commercial sector. Um, I've been the CEO of a couple of companies, uh, most recently Biological Dynamics, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute. Uh, but I've also been the chief medical officer of uh, both public and uh, private companies, um, and I've had the opportunity to really see the development of uh, personalized and then precision personalized medicine um, uh, as a new tool uh, to help treat people. And uh, I, I was a practicing physician uh, for a good part of my career, uh, so I, I was actually able to uh, see it work in the clinic, which is uh, even more gratifying. Um, so that's that's me. I'm a uh, right now. I'm a CEO and a director of several companies, and uh, really interested in uh, seeing uh, the new things happen, uh, making medicine better. And thank you so much for that great overview. By the way. Talk us, talk us through where Biological Dynamics is today. So Biological Dynamics uh, is more than 10 years old and uh, has spent the vast majority of its time and money uh, over the last 10 years developing a really breakthrough technology uh, which allows in a very small amount of blood, uh, less than a half a cc of blood, uh, the uh, ability to isolate particles uh, that are present in the plasma, in the liquid part of blood. And um, in that, with that technology and with all that development, uh, we've been able to uh, focus on some uh, particles that are present in the blood, which were, were largely unexamined historically. Um, you know, we uh, historically we looked at proteins, we looked at the cells in the blood, uh, those kinds of components. These, these particles called exosomes, uh, are incredibly abundant and uh, were largely un, un, unexamined, but we've been able to create a rapid and effective and cheap way for people to examine it. And then we've, of course, examined it as well. And we found that it's a really uh, use, that exosomes are abundant and that their cargo, the things that are inside these little vesicles that we isolate, are, are very informative about the cells that produce them. And so we've turned that observation uh, on, onto questions which have uh, plagued uh, physicians and patients for since the beginning, uh, and uh, hopefully are beginning to produce some really interesting new answers and solving really difficult problems in healthcare. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's uh, I always ask, right? Because you have been around for ten plus years, you know, it's interesting to hear where things are at today through your lens, and. You know, you're you're solving some really great problems uh, in, in in healthcare. Talk us through, you know, how you see your technology today uh, helping with many of the problems that you solve, and then also where where it's heading in the future. 
Well, today, you know, we've we've just really stabilized and commercialized the technology, and uh, we've just actually uh, begun to accumulate the clinical evidence that we need to to show how the technology will uh, benefit uh, doctors and patients. Right. So we're in the uh, I would say the rapid data accumulate clinical uh, practical uh, data accumulation phase, uh, as well as distributing our instrument and our, uh, our, our consumables to researchers all over the world so that they can use the instrument and develop uh, corroborative, corroborative data, new, new insights, using the, uh, the isolation of exosomes as a tool to help them. And then, of course, we learn from their work as well. So it's, it's, we're right in this uh, transitional phase and I've, you know, I've seen it at other companies as well that I've been at over the, over my career, where uh, we've we've got a new insight. We the insight is reliable. Uh, we've put it in, you know, we can do it at clinical grade. And now we're going to accumulate a whole bunch very quickly of clinical evidence about applications, about ways that it provides insight. And that's where we are now. Our we're most we're most advanced in pancreatic cancer and in the early detection of pancreatic cancer. You know, pancreatic cancer is one of the most deadly uh, cancers that are out there. Uh, it's probably now the second most deadly cancer after lung cancer uh, uh, in terms of the number of cases per year. And uh, pancreatic cancer is one of those cancers where if you don't diagnose it and treat it effectively in the very earliest stages, uh, your chances of survival are very, very much diminished. The ten-year survival for pan or the five-year survival for pancreatic cancer is on the order of ten percent. Uh, but if you catch it at stage zero, which is the very earliest stage, or stage one, where you have a very, very little tumor uh, in the pancreas, uh, the five-year survival is at least fifty percent and probably higher. So just shifting the time of diagnosis, uh, the the stage of di at the at the stage of diagnosis gives you a five-fold increase in five-year survival. An that's an amazing, amazing um, statistic. So we're all about identifying people who should have regular detection, regular surveillance of their pancreatic cancer risk, and then providing them with the most effective surveillance, better than imaging, better than other blood tests, uh, you know, the best in class, and, and then getting more and more people diagnosed early and treated effectively. That's our first target. We'll have others, and we're going to stay with that theme. We're going to stay with themes where there are people at risk. Uh, if they get caught early, they're going to be treated and they're going to be cured. If they're caught late, they're not going to be uh, cured with the treatments usually. And we're going to provide the best-in-class surveillance for those patients. Now, in in your space, what what are some of the key ways that that you feel you differentiate from those other diagnostic and lab tests that exist today? So uh, there's a hit. We're in the largely in the so-called liquid biopsy space, and the liquid biopsy space is a space in which um, people are trying to use blood tests, mostly sometimes urine, sometimes saliva, but mostly blood tests to to. Uh, replace what used to be very invasive surgical or you know needles biopsies, right? We used to take, we used to absolutely need tissue to uh, make a final diagnosis of, of a disease, to pro to get make the prognosis and to set the treatment 
plan for that disease. And, and, and largely, we still need tissue at some point along the diagnostic and, and um, uh, illness odyssey uh, to a better inform uh, care. But the more and more we can shift it to blood testing or to other kinds of um, fluid testing, the better it is for the patient. The, the more often you can do the, the, the uh, procedure, the surveillance, for instance, in our case. And so it's, it's a better situation if you can do it in the blood. We've been trying to do it in the blood for decades. You know, we had protein tests. We had, you know, we have simple blood tests. We have more complicated esoteric blood tests. Uh, more, most recently in the liquid biopsy space, we've had the, the use of uh, the analysis of DNA in the blood, uh, particularly DNA produced by tumors. In if your if your uh, disorder that you're studying is a is a cancer, um, and looking for a circulating tumor. DNA and in analyzing it in various ways, whether you analyze it for targets to treat or you analyze simply the amount to decide whether uh, there's a, a tumor producing a lot of circulating tumor DNA or not. Anyway, uh, DNA, some people use RNA. We use exosomes. And the reason we like exosomes is that they're incredibly abundant and they're produced all the time, no matter what. Uh, there, we've not found a situation where there's a a normal cell or a cancer cell, for that matter, that isn't producing uh, these vesicles uh, at, uh, during during their entire uh, life. Uh, circulating tumor DNA, for instance, is produced mostly by the death of cells, and that death of cells can be the normal death of cells. It can be done because there's an immune response to those cells. But the bottom line is, uh, it requires a death, and you know that's a, dis a disordered cell. And um, there are limitations to what kinds of cells will produce uh, cell-free DNA, for instance, um, uh, when, when, uh, uh, and put, put that material into the blood. That, that those limitations don't seem to be true uh, for exosomes. So we're focused on exosomes and uh, on using exosomes at all stages uh, of the diagnostic odyssey. And, you know, when, when you're improving outcomes, how... How would you say the, the platform and test is currently being used by physicians, for example, to improve those outcomes? Okay, so it's very early on, as I said. So we're in the, uh, we're, we're just learning how uh, physicians and patients best use our technology. And there may be other applications of it that are, um, that we just haven't yet fully gotten a data set for, uh, but may be very important. But right now, the way physicians are using it is identifying a high-risk patient let's say for pancreatic cancer, and that pe people might have a genetic reason, a family history reason, a, a, uh, a fact of their, um, uh, you know, past clinical event that, you know, let's say they had pancreatitis most of their lives, or they have a cyst, for instance, uh, in their pancreas, and a lot of people uh, have cysts in their pancreas. And the question is, we, we are asking physicians to use our test along with the, the current guideline um, recommendations, which are mostly about imaging and biopsy, and use our test to, to decide whether that uh, clinical situation has converted to an early stage cancer or still benign. If it's still benign, they can wait for another three to six to nine months and do, do the procedures again. Or if it's obviously, if our test says that it's not benign anymore, uh, then they need to be more aggressive in uh, further working up uh, that uh, 
that uh, lesion that there's uh, concern about and pr presumably removing it as quickly as possible because we know that without removing it, uh, those lesions progress and uh, reduce life expectancy. And again, you, you said, you know, things are, things are still early, but what, what are the next steps? What are some of the parts that really excite you about what's next? Well, applying it uh, in, in all sorts of populations. I already told you, um, patients with pancreatitis, patients with cysts, uh, patients with a family history or genetic findings that put them at high risk for pancreatic cancer. Those are the really, and so we're participating in clinical trials that are uh, using uh, patient cohorts from all over the world uh, to really, uh, really further identify exactly uh, when we can and what frequency uh, patients should have the surveillance. Obviously, uh, pancreatic cancer is a disorder uh, mostly of people above the age of 50. Um, so uh, if you're at risk but younger, do you need to have the surveillance as frequently as someone above the age of 50? Well, probably not, but we need to, we really need to have firm evidence of all that. So um, we're, we're answering all sorts of really uh, applied relevant questions of how to use a very highly sensitive and very effective surveillance tool uh, in a particular deadly disease. Now we're going to take lessons from that and then we're going to turn that information on ovarian cancer for instance and on lung cancer and on other really uh, deadly cancers where while we're making uh, important treatment progress uh, still uh, early early detection and surgical removal is still the mainstay uh, of uh, treatment uh, uh, approaches. And that's where uh, my company is going to make most of its efforts. Now, there are other, uh, we may cre create with that information, with that experience, other products. For instance, uh, we might create a product which uh, you could use not even in high-risk people, in average-risk people across a lot of cancers. And there are other companies, of course, uh, and, and other investigators who are trying to do that uh, right off the bat. We're starting with high-risk, high-value patients and trying to make, uh, you know, save some lives very quickly. Uh, but we're learning, and we may apply it to other cancers. Our, our technology works in other disorders. You know, there's been a lot of excitement uh, around uh, new treatments for uh, Alzheimer's dementia uh, recently. Uh, 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 dementias produce exosomes uh, that are detectable in the blood, uh, and uh, uh, so we're applying our technology in very early uh, trials uh, to see whether we can uh, identify different kinds of uh, dementias, including Alzheimer's dementia and uh, traumas to the brain, for instance. And uh, that may turn out to be another area where we can apply our knowledge uh, to, to the benefit of patients. Well, I'm excited to stay up to date with you and, and hear where things continue to progress. And hopefully we can have you come back on again in the near future and dive more into I'd love to. Uh, some of the, I look Thanks. forward to it. Thanks for having me.